this is Louise Campbell, co-host of Surfing the National Army podcast, and I'm standing in this week for Roger Green whilst he takes a well-earned rest. And when he told me it was Jersey Shore, I just automatically thought of the programme. I never knew it was a place, so hopefully he's having a great time on Jersey Shore and having some rest and relaxation so while the cat is away, the mice get to play. This weekend, we're offering conversations from Season 3, Episode 42, looking at the development framework and how this may be helpful for developing integrated multidisciplinary pathways for people with NASH or NAFLD. Within this, we delve into the role that patients and allied health professionals have within these and how and why some of these stakeholders are not involved from the beginning. And as you can probably appreciate, when you have a bunch of nurses on a podcast with a doctor, it might get a little feisty. So well done, John Schattenberg, and listen for more. So here's one from The Vault, if you wanted to know where this conversation started. Series 3, Episode 9, Conversation 4. Catherine Jack, Michelle Clayton, Pam O'Donoghue and Patricia Kunzler, expert nurses in fields of HIV, hepatitis, nursing, competency writing from different countries and also HCC specialities, looked at how we could utilise money better. If we pumped primed a little bit earlier in the pathway, would we need all of the expensive drugs that we use for HCC? So take a listen, see where the conversation went. But Series 3, Episode 9, listen to all of the conversations and see where you can utilise the strengths of your nurses. Pam O'Donoghue. I can say this because I work in oncology, but we've got so much systemic therapy for HCC now. Compared to 10 years ago, it feels like it's really got itself into the limelight. And that's great and everything. But we're spending billions of pounds on now something like six or seven drugs that will prolong your life an extra few weeks or months. And I sometimes think, why is none of this money being invested way back at the start of the journey where Kate is and yourselves are going out and trying to prevent it from getting to that state. I mean, we've got now got atezabeb, lenvatinib, regorafenib, carbazantinib, clinical trials, SBRT, CERT. I mean, compared to 10 years ago, there was serafinib. And I feel like all these CNSs have been hoovered up to manage all these patients going from TKI to TKI to TKI to TKI. And I think, but, but what about the start? It doesn't feel balanced. Is that is that a fair assumption of mine? Michelle Clayton. Yes, I think it is fair, actually, Pam. But also, so there's been a lot of interest in developing these these different therapies and obviously from a pharma perspective some of those therapies allow them their companies to to profit if we look at it in terms of our own populations then if we think back to the UK in the 1990s there was a big push about the government looking at renal and cancer and cardiovascular and those are the services now that have reaped the benefits, whereas liver was not described even at that time. But actually, it's been hiding underneath all of this. And then all of a sudden, it's popped its head above the parapet and said, hello, look at me. I am the big problem now. We've somewhat been blindsided. And and when I say we, I mean the population, the policymakers, everybody's been blindsided by actually all of a sudden we've got a massive problem in terms of people at risk and with liver disease and and unfortunately that is being replicated across the world we used to see it in the US with their stats around obesity but we're seeing that consistently now across 
countries that would never have had any issues with fatty liver previously now have have those problems as well. Louise Campbell. And I think you're right. And what you described there and what Pam has described is a Western society that has access to expensive drugs, where it causes more problems, the lower socioeconomic countries and third world developing countries who will never get access to the expense of those medications. On one hand, we've got all of these great drugs, but we have no people there to locate disease early enough to stop them needing those drugs. And I think that's what Stephen was alluding to. If we can even target that for NAFLD and NASH quite early. My concern is if we don't have this expertise on the clinical front line, we can't have that discussion with people for early diagnosis. We can't have that discussion to get them into trials. And one of the reasons this podcast started was trials for fatty liver disease were falling by the wayside or failing to recruit. We have liver biopsies that require ballooning. And we've recently discussed how difficult it is in the tissue that we get to see one ballooning site and have histopathologists agree with it to get somebody included into clinical trials. So without a forefront of either nurses, primary care, it sounds from what everybody's describing is it's really difficult to have that conversation because we're not seeing people to be able to talk to them, to be able to get them into trials, to give them access to better treatments. It is a circular argument. Where do we finish it? And I suppose the last point is we've got obviously competency documents. If you're sitting somewhere else in the world and you want to access these competency documents that the Lancet Commission reported on. How can you take them and adapt them away? Is there is there something you would suggest? Because I don't know whether you've taken them, Patricia, and utilised them within your education work within the universities and that. I know you and Catherine both work on the uh, International Liver Foundation with ESL and that. So how are they being viewed as the only global competencies that we've got? Just before anybody answers that, can I just say they are the most comprehensive competencies, but we do know that there are other smaller areas of work that has been done. So the Australian Hepatology Association have got some consensus guidelines that have been published between about 2019 and 2021, but more around very specific areas such as Hep B, Hep C, HCC and also advanced liver disease. And also CALM, the Canadian Association of Hepatology Nurses, they do have a gain some specific competencies. Their most recent one actually just published very recently is around NAFLD as well. I suppose in response of the the Royal College of Nursing competencies, they're there to be used. Anybody can go onto the RCN site and actually download a copy. doesn't matter what country you are in the world. What it is then is about how do you adapt them for the nursing population within that specific country. What I would say is that I think there are core competencies that would cross-cut every country in the world. So things around pathophysiology, certain aspects of care, certain treatments from an easel perspective and also the Morse, AAH, CARN, ARSL, D, etc. We might be able to look at a common platform and then it might be for each country should they wish to and if they could, then they could personalise that further to their country because what we know is every country treats 
live and nursing differently. We know in Germany there aren't any live and nurses as such. So it's interesting to see how that might be able to be adapted going forwards. I mean, I, I don't know what Patricia thinks from a Swiss perspective and your your Swiss um, Hepatology Association. Patricia Kanzler. Thank you, Michelle. I'm not sure if the Swiss Association knows about the competency framework, as it is a primarily a physician and scientific association. For us, it's uh, very useful, the competencies, but what we see is that we have to speak in patient situations what is a complex patient, what is an easy patient, and how we can use these special skills within the situation itself. And then it becomes more attractive how we can use it. So we take the story behind of a patient taking care of this patient, and then the competencies are quite easy to use. Stephen, do you know whether or not the American nurses, any of the girls that you work with or your nursing team, do you have a set of standards that's not in a clinical trial protocol, for example? Stephen Harrison. Yeah, I, I'm not aware of any. Again, getting back to what we were saying earlier, I think we need to all come to the same seat, same table, and kind of work through a unified message of what we want to say and how we want to deliver it, because I don't think that exists. Certainly, my nurses don't don't have anything like that. I know there's advanced nurse practitioners, and they're very well regulated and highly regarded, and I've met a few of those. But Well, cer- certainly, our, our nurse practitioners, practitioners and our physician assistants, you know, the APPs, advanced practice providers, have an additional skill set. But even there, there's no prescriptive message that we're delivering. More importantly, even at the LVN and registered nurse level, we should have some sort of prescriptive message that we deliver that's uniform across the board, whether I give it as liver doctor focused on fatty liver or my colleague who's a gastro neurologist seeing patients in a general GI clinic or a primary care provider or an APP or a RN or an LVN or a medical assistant, they all should be delivering the same message. And unfortunately, again, as we heard from our patient at the top of the hour, that just doesn't happen. But also, I think it's important to set different levels within the competencies as well, because it's everybody's job, right? It's the clinic nurses. It just, it's not just about a nurse specialist. Okay, the board nurses are quite busy, but even if they were to have a level one signage of the competencies, they're at least able to define to a patient what fatty liver is. Okay, they're not comparing and contrasting it with other diseases, or they're not critically analysing it, but at least there's a baseline level one knowledge. Then you get to decide as a unit, do you want your staff level one trained, level two or level three trained. And an example of that is when I was managing nurse specialists at the Harley Street Clinic, you know, there was times when I didn't have cover for certain specialities. So I might have an esophagogastric CNS, um, but I didn't have a HPB CNS to cover a certain HPB clinic. So we would give the esophagogastric nurse the competencies and say, would you mind over the next eight to 12 weeks to bring yourself up to level one at least? We don't expect you to know everything, but there's a certain amount of knowledge that we do want you to achieve in 12 weeks so that you can cover that clinic for six months. So I don't think we can expect that every nurse that comes across a patient is going to be an advanced nurse practitioner and know her stuff inside out, even ensuring that there's a level one knowledge base that frontline nurses can achieve is important as well. I think that's one of the things that we tried to do with the competence framework was that it's at different levels. So you could even come in as a practice nurse in primary care and achieve something within 
in the suite of the different competencies and then we built them up so you had that foundation and then you went on to specialist and advanced care and that's one of the things that's important is that there in any competence framework that there's flexibility people can see how it relates to them and also it's at the right level for them I think you make a, a good point in terms of we can't make everybody a clinical nurse specialist but what we can do is furnish them with some fundamental skills that can be achieved whatever the country across the world and and whatever their role is as well. Wonderful and on that note I'm going to start to draw you to a close because we could discuss this topic forever. So I'm going to go around the table again and I'm going to ask you to come up with one thing that you've heard tonight that's changed your practice or given you something to think about as to how we can move forward with liver nursing to develop a better understanding and what would you like to see happen in the next two to three years? Michelle? Um, I mean this has been raised before about having a sort of global liver nurse community and there were certainly certain people involved such as from the BLNA so the British liver nurses the Canadians, the Australians and also the Americans but I think it needs to be more substantially thought about and also to be able to offer something that we know that NAFLD, we know that fatty liver obesity is this huge problem across every country now that maybe we do need to do something more globally as nurses to try and offer a platform for nurses to be able to access whether that be knowledge skill acquisition, understanding, etc. Fantastic, Kate. Well, one thing that really struck me from what Stephen was just saying was about the importance of thinking about other clinical specialties that we could evolve to discuss patients with and situations. For example, the podiatrists. And that's a good point. You know, what, what else do they need to know? One other thing that I'd be really interested in exploring in the UK would be to have a different type of formal liver course that's accredited. This has been talked about for years and Michelle is just greasing up with laughter here because it is definitely something that's been talked about for a long period of time but I'm just wondering whether something that's based on the, the those core competences in that document that would be a great starting point to then be able to formally say that someone's achieved at a, at a certain level. That's a whole programme on its own. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah you know the major stumbling block is finance. Uh, universities are very cash driven now and that's become one of the issues with the change in, in, in the UK certainly around funding of CPD etc. I've got a quick final plea really to anyone listening who might be involved in designing clinical trials and that's about including making a real effort with inclusivity and people's languages because for example we have trouble recruiting to HEP B trials on a slight tangent here because people don't understand the patient information sheets because English isn't their first language and there's no funding in the trial to have an interpreter. So if anybody out there is listening and is involved in clinical trial development of any sort, it's, you know, to get a more representative population. It just seems to be completely overlooked and no one who's a a senior clinician involved as part of this seems to be picking this up either, which is a real shame. Is that with commercial companies? Yeah. That's interesting because I'm surprised that's getting through ethics without provision for that because certainly for HCC, we're able to get the commercial companies. To to be honest, whenever... 
we have open trials. They've never been readily available. But I, I must confess, I've always contacted the drug company and I've had it delivered in 20 different languages for every trial. But that's me reaching out to the commercial company. And to be honest, they don't have to provide it. The trust probably should Yeah, the local R&D department probably should have sorted that out. But the, the drug companies have been really good about it. For example, with CERT, the internal radiation team, they sent me in at least 20 different languages when I asked um, CERTEX to do that. Stephen will be able to comment on that one. Yeah, unfortunately, in the fatty liver world, that's not happening. We can ask for a Spanish consent for our Hispanic population, but generally that takes six to eight weeks after initiation of the trial to get it translated and then IRB approved. But to Kate's point, there there's a lot of disparities in healthcare here, getting that out to people of Asian descent. I mean, Asians have just as much fatty liver as Caucasians do. And a lot of them live in the UK. A lot of them live in the United States. And we can't recruit those people. Vietnamese, Chinese, uh, Koreans, you name it, were challenged by that. That's a good point, Kate, and one that particularly with our phase three trials, we need to be ready to pivot with a wide variety of languages at the ready. Uh, Louise, with that, I'm going to have to go because I've got to keep moving on. But it's so nice to meet you ladies and all the hard work that you do every day. And I hope that this podcast is really a nidus for change and an opportunity for us to be more collaborative as we conquer fatty liver disease. And again, leave that big fat dent on the planet. Fantastic. Thank you. See you later. Bye. Patricia. All right, Pam, you go next no, I know I, because it was just something I battled with so much with the languages. I must confess, I feel Kate's pain. But do you have, do you guys use language line? I mean, it's painful. I, I remember counseling patients through language line used to take me two hours. And I think that's a particular British thing from that one. A lot of countries will use relatives. It's a particularly British thing, but we have to add a, give a code when we dial in. And if there isn't a code assigned to a study trial, then there isn't another one they can use. And it's just semantics but it's really difficult but it definitely excludes a population. Patricia, anything you're going to take away from this evening? I take a lot uh, with me but I'm really aware also in this conversation all speak from collaboration and nurses are important but honestly we are here we are doing research but we need funding we need others have to see us and we have to publish our results and disseminate and I really look forward that we get a little bit more proactively invited and that our results also get implemented in clinical practice because we are really important and we try also on the European level to disseminate and to force nursing research and especially in NEFLD or NASH, nursing care will be important but if we will have trials on behavior change or something else then it's quite hard to receive funding. So hopefully we can work also in this direction and can enhance the collaboration between all of us. Fantastic. And Pam, what are you going to take away? I'm probably not going to word this properly, but I feel like the British Liver Trust need to be beating the doors down at the university, just making it compulsory that these nurses are coming out just below level one trained and ready for the outside world of fatty liver and the pandemic that we're in with that. I think they're a very powerful organisation and you have huge parliamentary influence and they could be a huge asset actually in all of this i'll um i'll feed that message back to the ceo there pam uh who's also called pam so yeah. <laughs> you know, she's, um, we, we've been because cert was commissioned by hc in 
when NICE approved last March, there's only 10 centres in the UK and there's meant to be up to 30. And we've just been struggling to get them commissioned because NHS England is on its knees. And we've contacted Pam and I've just been really shocked and impressed with the support they've given us and the, the voice they have is huge and we're making progress finally. Excellent news. And I would like to thank you all for joining me and having this stimulating debate because I'm going to take away from listening to you all is the fact that when we start to develop clinical trials for NAFLD and NASH, actually using the competencies of liver disease might give our research teams and the people who design those trials an understanding of what they're dealing with and a basic knowledge for the education. Michelle, you said it, by utilising the education elements, you can put your own programmes together and develop it out. As we design clinical pathways to look at international management of NAFLD and NASH, we can be actually working from something that's fairly concentric and focused and we can add pieces to that jigsaw puzzle that are specific to an African location or I talk a lot about Australia and indigenous health and indigenous populations that are extremely prone to fatty liver disease and liver cancers and things like that. That's the one way I'm taking it about and I've just got a picture in my mind of Pam doing her video podcast of that and everybody seeing it around the world. That is the strength of coming together is that as we design pathways for fatty liver disease throughout the world we can design it with nurses key in every element and every area to help support our medical colleagues deliver better care better outcomes and get these drugs in and now back to roger We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami. Until then, stay safe and surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.